Good morning, Four Oaks. Pastor Paul, lead pastor here at Four Oaks Killarn. Lois, let me just say that was very impressive. I've never gotten an, a, like an ovation before an announcement like that. That was very impressive. Um, anyway, before we get rolling, let me just update you quickly on uh, just a couple of personal things. One, just thanks to all of you who've been praying uh, for my family, particularly for my dad as he's walked through his, um, his uh, battle with cancer and been praying for him. Um, you may say, well, Pastor Paul, you haven't given us an update in a while. Well, you're just going to have to ask him yourself because he's here this morning, and so we're so glad for that. <laughs> yeah, he's signing, he's signing autographs afterwards. Um, he, along with, with my sister and her family, are here for Jack's graduation. We affectionately know them as the Kentucky Cousins, and um, we're super glad that they are here. All right, but this morning, we are going to be in Romans 9, so you can open your Bibles there. Let me just kind of forecast for you where we're going to be over um, this coming summer season. We've obviously been in the book of Romans now for almost a full school year, nine, eight or nine months, and we're going to be finishing up Romans 9 and 10 here in the next couple of weeks, and then we're going to take a, a break here in the summer, not from preaching, uh, but for, in terms of preaching series. We are going to be shifting to the Old Testament for a couple of months in a series we're calling The Story of Israel. It's really going to just be kind of an Old Testament survey overview of all the key developments um, in the life of that nation and the Jewish people, which will deliver us to Romans 11, because Paul's great burden and passion in Romans 9 through 11 is to answer the question, what's happened to the Jewish people? Paul, there are a lot of Gentiles in the church, but despite the fact that, Jew, that Jesus was Jewish, that Paul, you're Jewish, the apostles were Jewish, the first generation of the early church were primarily Jews, now we look at the landscape and we wonder what's happened. And Paul is writing to the church in Rome in Romans 9 through 11 um, to answer that question. And I'll understand something. Paul is not writing as an Ivy League pointed head theologue, right? He's, he's, he's not sort of insulated from the things he's writing about. Paul is a brokenhearted, not just apostle, he's a brokenhearted pastor. I mean, let's think about this from, from Paul's perspective, right? He's, he's grown up a Jew. He's trained as a Jew. His people um, are Jews. All his friends growing up are Jews. But you can see towards the end of his life, as he mentions different friends in his letters, they're primarily Gentiles. And it would have raised a question. And the question is simply put like this, and Paul addresses it right off the bat in Romans 9. He says in this way, he says, well, you will say to me then, Paul, has the word of God failed? I mean, Paul, here we have the old covenant people of God. Um, they have the patriarchs, the promises, the sacrificial system. Um, they have all they have the front row seat to the, the story of redemption, but yet where are they? Paul, has the word of God failed with his people? Because the subtext of that is what? If we can't trust the word of God to his people, how can we trust the word of God to his, his new covenant people? How, how does all this stuff you've been talking about in Romans 1 through 8, how, how can we trust that, Paul? And as we've said over and over through this series, let's be honest, that's the subtext of a lot of our lives. We may not say it in that way, but it's there. God, when I look at my marriage, when I look at my children, my family, my, my career, my vocation, 
my, where I am in my station of life. This is not where I thought I would be. This is not what I thought life would look like. Are you faithful, God? Are, are you faithful to your promises? Can I really trust you in this? And Paul's unequivocal answer, both to them and to us, is absolutely. In fact, the first 29 verses of this chapter in Romans 9 has been Paul's answer to this question. And his answer, if you want to short it to a little phrase, all right, a little blurb, is simply this. Yes, you can trust that God's word has not failed because of God's sovereignty. God is in absolute 100% control of everything that happens in your life. He is, he's the authority, he's the, he's the king, nothing takes him by surprise, he's accomplishing his purposes, he's working out all his holy will, and as we know from Romans 8, even in the hard things, the difficult things, the sufferings, God's going to have his way. You can bank on that. And that's where we have been the last four weeks, and you just heard it in four minutes, which might lead you to ask, then why didn't, why did it take us four weeks, right? But there we are. That's Paul's first answer, God's sovereignty. But Paul is going to provide us a second answer this morning, right? It's not antithetical to the first answer. In fact, it complements it. Um, it. It's a mysterious melding of these two things. But Paul is going to give us sort of a part two to this, to this question of, has the word of God failed? And why, Paul, do we find ourselves in this position? Why does the church find itself in this position where God's chosen people of the old covenant are no longer a part of the church? Paul's first answer was God's sovereignty. His second answer is going to be to take a deep dive into the human heart. He wants to sort of go from 40,000 feet to ground level and he wants to show, so kind of shine a light in our hearts. And he wants to show us the nature of unbelief, the, the, the nature of saving faith. What is it that's going on at the heart level, not just with the Jewish people, but for anyone who, who makes that decision to reject Christ, to turn away from him, to no longer trust in him? What's happening on that basic human heart level side of things. And as we get a glimpse of what Paul says about that in Romans 9, we'll get a glimpse, I think, into our own hearts. So I'm going to invite us to stand this morning as we read God's Word. We're going to be in Romans 9. We're going to start at verse 20. I'm sorry, in verse 30, and read through chapter 10, verse 4. So hear God's Word. What shall we say then, Paul says, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in, in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. 
For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would not be distant, abstract observers to these amazing truths that you lay out here in your word. Lord, we pray that you would wed our hearts to them. We pray, Father, that, that you would turn our gaze from out there to in here and what's happening within our own souls this morning. And so, Father, we stand before you and say we know we need righteousness and we can pursue it in only one place. And that is your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Take your seats. Well, I was feeling a little nostalgic this week, so I plagiarized this sermon title from a Don Henley song. It's called The Heart of the Matter. If you know, you know. If you don't know, you don't know, right? That's all I got to say. Um, three points this morning, um, all alliterated, which is no surprise, and even no surprise as well, all involving the letter P. It's just kind of inside joke if you're around here, all right? All my points seem to begin with the letter P. But anyway, here we go. Let me list the three points to tell you where we're going, and then we'll dive in. First of all, we're going to talk about the theological paradigm or framework that you and I need to have as we come um, to this text. Secondly, we're going to talk about the spiritual problem at the heart of all unbelief. That's kind of the, the central part of the message. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the biblical prescription. So where, where do we go with this from here in terms of the things that Paul's saying and really incorporating them into our lives? So let's talk about the theological paradigm first. And what we mean here is the framework that we need to have to understand biblically what Paul is really wrestling here with. So look at um, chapter 10, verse 1. Paul, Paul, lays, Paul lays it out clearly. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And of course, um, this echoes what he says at the beginning of Romans 9. This is very personal for Paul. This is not abstract. This is not theoretical. Um, this is... Um, this, Paul goes, Paul tells us in Romans 9, if I could, I would be accursed for the sake of my brethren, the Jews. Paul, Paul's in a very humble place before God, right? And it, it's a great reminder for us that, that when we're, we're handling these weighty doctrines, Four Oaks, about God's sovereignty and salvation, these are not debate points. These are not um, things we want to sort of dangle in front of our friends over lunch to to convince them to become a part of our theological system or theological tribe. This is the real deal for Paul. And it's the real deal for us. And you see his heart coming out here. Now, saying that, Paul says something now in verse 2 that might surprise us in light of God's sovereignty that he's been talking about in Romans 9. Remember, Paul's subject has been unconditional election. God saves who he's going to save. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. He has compassion upon, upon whom he has compassion. But if we're playing philosopher at home, we might make a wrong deduction um, about what Paul's saying here. But listen to what Paul says in, in verse 2. He says, For I bear, well, I'm sorry, go back to verse 1. He says, Brothers, my heart desire, and listen, and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. You see, sometimes when we hear doctrines like the sovereignty of God or predestination or election or calling, um, we immediately begin to connect dots in our minds philosophically that aren't there biblically. 
We, 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 we begin to say things like, well, well Pastor Paul, that, I mean, if God's really sovereign over salvation, that means that why should I pray? Why should I evangelize? What, does it really matter what we do? Aren't we just robots? Aren't we just sort of like these little puppets in the, in the, in the stage show of God where he is sort of directing all the affairs of humanity? And let me just say this, church, that would be a wrong assessment to make. Um, that's importing a human category into the Bible that's not there. You see, one of the things that Paul is going to show us in Romans 10 is that one of the ways that God accomplishes his will, one of the ways that God accomplishes his sovereignty is through human means. And primarily, um, one of the, the, the biggest human activities that God uses to carry out his will is, guess what? Prayer. And when we come across texts in the scriptures which say things like, and I'm going to quote the, old, the, 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 the King James Version from James 4. What does it say? The prayer of a righteous man, you got to love the way James says, says this, availeth much, all right? Well, it literally means the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes many things, and it's very interesting, isn't it, that, that for Paul, God's sovereignty is, is not sort of a cue to sort of back himself out of things and to sort of take a, you know, um, a, a hands-off, detached approach. In fact, it's, it propels Paul into prayer. We're going to see um, in Romans 10, it's going to um, propel Paul into sharing the gospel, to, to sharing his faith, to pouring his heart out. And one of the things that, that we can be tempted to do when we, when we run across doctrines like this is to sort of pit one biblical text against another. And because we don't know how to reconcile them, we will end up casting aside the one that doesn't really fit into our system. When in reality, um, we want to embrace all that God's word has for us. Um, we don't want to reject either divine sovereignty or human responsibility. Because guys, the scriptures are very clear. He who does not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as his savior is lost. Apart from Christ, we have no hope. And unless you have a saving relationship where you choose Christ to be your Lord and Savior and place your faith in him, you will, have, you will be lost. And we say, we say, Pastor Paul, I don't understand how that works with God's sovereignty. Well, G.I. Packer has a word for this, and it's a word that we need to incorporate into our thinking, and it's called antinomy, not to be confused with a seashell or sea fish, right? An antinomy, it means two equal but parallel truths that aren't at first blush easily reconciled but which at the same time are equally true and just because we can't see how these things sort of meet in the mysteries of God in the plan of God doesn't make them not both equally valid let, let, let me give you an example Paul is going to tell us in Romans 10 that people can't come to Christ unless someone shares the gospel with them. And, and how can they hear the gospel if someone does not go? And how can someone um, hear the gospel if someone doesn't preach? 
This is, this, is, this is the human means that God uses to accomplish his sovereign will. Parents, I can say this unequivocally. If you take the posture, well, God's just going to do whatever he wants to with my kids, right? I don't really need to tell them about Jesus. I don't have to, like, teach them the Bible or share, share the gospel. God's, gonna, God's sovereign, right, Pastor Paul? Isn't God going to save who he's going to save? And I would say you fundamentally misunderstood the teaching of God's word, right? That if you don't share the gospel with them, how will they be saved? If you don't teach them the ways of the Lord, how will they be saved? You may say, well, Pastor Paul, I don't, I don't understand how these things sort of reconcile and come together. Guys, that's, that's not our business, right? Our business is to be obedient. God says to pray. God says to share. God says to evangelize. And God says to trust in his sovereignty. Because when I was um, in college and I was part of a ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ, and now it's some, something hipper and cooler with three letters, all right? So it's crew or whatever. Um, but when I was in Campus Crusade for Christ, um, it was th th this was a basic category from the beginning. Paul, it's your job to share the gospel. It's God's job to save people. And don't ever, ever, ever separate those two things. Because the reason I'm kind of belaboring this point is that sometimes the doctrine of the sovereignty of God can become a real stumbling block for us, right? Sometimes it can become a stumbling block in that we, that we because we don't understand it or don't agree with it, um, we, we quickly cast it aside. But it can happen in the other direction too, right? We, we, we can either, we, we can take sort of this hands-off posture of God's going to do what he's going to do. It doesn't really matter what I'm going to do. Because it's vitally important what you do through the power of the Spirit. You're not going to save someone, but guess what? God is going to use your evangelism and prayers to save someone. Guys, it's a great reminder. Um, you know, it's graduation weekend, and Parents are celebrating what's going on in the life of their students, but we know, right? Parents, in, in the depths of every one of your hearts is this desire. I, I just, I want, my, I want my son, I want my daughter to be a man of God. I want them to be a woman of God. I want them to, to follow the Lord. Um, but it doesn't seem that God's had a grip on their heart. Keep praying. Keep sharing. Keep walking. Keep being faithful. Yes, God is going to have his way, but God wants to use you as a means by which to draw other people to himself. Paul totally gets that. So that's the that's first, first point this morning. That's an important theological paradigm we need to have. But a second thing, this gets to the heart of the text. Let's try to understand um, the spiritual problem here. What was going on in the hearts of the Jewish people in their rejection of the gospel? And by the same token, what goes on in our hearts? Because as we're going to find out, we're, we're really the religious ones here, right, in the analogy. So let's go back. Let's look at um, uh, verse 30. Paul says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Now, if you're a Jewish person or a religious person and you're reading that, that is some fighting words right there. 
right? Let's, let's think about who the, who the parties are. Here you have the Jews, the Israelites, and they were the purveyors of righteousness. They made it their sole task in the Old Covenant. And it, guys, it, it's still this way. If you visit land of Israel, um, there is a high view of God. There's a high view of the righteousness of God and knowing the truths of God. But, but everything that we find in the Old Covenant, the law, the promises, the covenants, the sacrificial system, the patriarchs, the temple, it was all meant to communicate that as, the, as God's chosen people, we are set apart. We are, we are not to be a part of the Gentile world. We don't want to be contaminated by sin. The Gentiles, those are the dogs, the heathen, the unsaved. In our time, they're the cultural elites. They're the immoral. They're the purveyors of this doctrine or that doctrine. Remember, Jews couldn't dine with Gentiles. Um, Jews couldn't come into one another's home, uh, uh, could not come into other Gentiles' homes. They were considered unclean. So you got to understand what, how radical this is, what Paul is saying here. He's saying the people who pursued righteousness, who were to be the righteous light to the nations, those very people who loved righteousness so much have not attained it. The Gentiles, on the other hand, who couldn't give a rip about the law and about righteousness, they have it, right? Those, those are, and to a Jew, those, will be, those are fighting words, right? This is Jimbo Fisher going scorched earth on Nick Saban in the press conference this week. And if you, and if you don't know, you really should know. Let me just say that, right? That, that's how this whole thing would have been viewed by, by, by the Jews, I mean, they're the, they're the elite, the spiritual elite. They're living in Beverly Hills, and all of a sudden, you've got, from Kentucky or Tennessee, the Beverly Hillbillies rolling in, right? And we're like, what is going on? Now, the question is, okay, knowing that the Israelites who loved the things of God and righteousness didn't attain it, and that the Gentiles who hated the things of God and righteousness did attain it, the question is, why? And I'm going to submit to you there's no more important question than you can ask this morning. There, there is no more important question than, than, than you can wrestle with about what's going on in our hearts and about our need or our perceived need for Jesus or not. And Paul attempts to answer this question. He does answer this question. Look at verse 32. Why, he says, because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. What is the it? Okay, what is the it in this? They pursued it. Well, it, of course, is righteousness. And all good religious folk, right, understood God is righteous, holy, and pure. And there is a consistent call in the Old Testament to be righteous and holy and pure. And by the way, that, that call is still the same in the New Testament as well. Paul says the problem is that they pursued righteousness in the wrong way. So l l listen closely. This is really important. You see, the, the religious folk, the Jews, wrongly concluded that because God was righteous, it was up to them to obtain a certain level of righteousness to maintain their relationship 
with God. If God's righteous, and he says, I need to be righteous, then obviously I needed to do everything I can to be righteous. But here was the point, and here is what they miss in the whole thing. It was clearly an impossibility. You see, everything that all the Old Testament sacrifices, their systems, their laws were meant to communicate is not only are you right as God righteous and not only are you not, but there's nothing you can do to fix that problem in yourself. In fact, one of the clearest teachings we find in the Old Testament, remember guys, old, in, saints in the Old Testament were not saved by works. They were not saved by righteousness. What does it say in Genesis? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What does David say in Psalm 51? You didn't desire sacrifices. You didn't desire blood offerings. Your offering that you desire, Lord, is what? A broken spirit and a contrite heart. We hear in Habakkuk 2, salvation is of the Lord. And Everything that was happening under the old covenant was meant to communicate to them and to us that we need something more. We, we, we can't be righteous. We need someone to be righteous in our place. We need someone to be righteous on our behalf. We need someone who is going to secure salvation for us to do something we cannot do for ourselves and this person, of course, is Jesus. Now, look at, look at what um, Paul does here in quoting from Isaiah. Look at verse 29. And I want you to see how Isaiah refers to Jesus as the rock. Okay, now, and Peter makes sort of the same claim, right? He, he quotes the same passage. Let's read the passage. It says, they, and he's talking about the Jews, have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. What does this mean that Jesus is the stone? Well, it means that it was always God's original intention and purpose that Jesus, because we could not build our scaffolding to God, right? It's like building with tinker toys and you finally get to a certain height and it all collapses. That's what our efforts at righteousness do. God says, you need a cornerstone, a foundation. You need a structure that will never fall, that is big enough to bear the weight of your sins, that is big enough to bear the weight of your brokenness. And that, that person or that rock is Jesus. Do you understand the analogy so far? Build your life on Jesus. Your salvation is built upon Jesus. But he said, instead of becoming the cornerstone for the people in the Old Testament, it says that the, the, the rock has become a stumbling stone. That it's something that the, the Jewish people didn't build upon. It's something they fell over. They stumbled. They, they fell on their face. And we have to ask, why was Jesus such a stumbling stone? And why is he such a stumbling stone now? Why is he such a stumbling stone now? And I think it's, it's, it, it's, it's very simple, right? If someone had to come and die for us so that we could know Christ, 
If someone had to come to die for us to secure our salvation, to forgive us of our sins, that means we're not capable of fixing ourselves. We aren't capable of fixing the brokenness that's in our heart. And let's be honest, that's really offensive, right? If, if you don't think so, culturally speaking, this is very offensive. You want to be offensive? Just tell people they are wicked and evil and apart from Jesus, they are going to hell. What will they be? Offended, all right? It's not how to win friends and influence people, right? But it, it's how to be faithful. What's happened there? Well, Jesus has been transformed. I mean, I'm down with Jesus as a good dude. I'm down with Jesus as like teaching good morals, or he's like a, he's like a cool prophet. You know, he's got nice sandals and the beard and the robe and all that. I, I like Jesus as a philosopher. I, I love Jesus as an example. Um, as a shepherd, he's really, really cool, right? But Jesus, as the wrath-bearing sacrifice for sins, ooh, that gets to the heart of the matter. Because that means if I admit my need for Jesus, I am saying I'm not okay. I, I, I'm just, I'm broken. I'm, I'm sinful. I'm, my life is a, is a mess. I'm all over the place. I don't have it together. And, and this is important for us to understand because in, in our current contemporary culture, who are the Jewish people? We are. You see, we're the religious. We're the folks who have had our traditions and rituals and groups and services which are all great in their own context. But sometimes even those things can become a stumbling block because we say, because I do them, because I'm faithful in them, because I'm pursuing them, then I'm okay. When in reality, the gospel is just upside down from all human fares. You know, Flannery O'Connor, the famous author, said, the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. And that's a great quote. Because it really means if you and I want to see our true need for the gospel or others' true need for the gospel, we need to pray that guys would open, God, God would open people's hearts to their own brokenness, to the fact that life apart from Christ just doesn't work. And so this is, a, so Paul, in talking about the Jews, says this is what's happening on the ground level. It's happening on the ground level of every heart that turns away from Christ, at the end of the day, he's just not someone I think I need. Now, here's, here's an interesting counterpart to that question. Look back in verse 29. While the Jews stumbled over the stone, what does it say in verse 30? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. Okay, now that word attain it literally means to seize hold of. It means to grab at desperately. That's what the word means. Now, what some of, I used this illustration, I used an illustration in the first service, but one of you was kind enough to tell me it wasn't very good. Here was a better illustration. So I'm going to use that illustration in this service. They were like, I, I did something about somebody drowning and I, I, it was okay. But anyway, they were like, look, I was a lifeguard and lifeguards are taught who is the most dangerous person 
in the pool when someone is drowning. The per I mean, the person you're trying to save is always the most dangerous one, right? Because what happens when you get in the water and they are so desperate, right, to be rescued, to be saved, they will grab hold of anything. They will reach, they will pull, they will kick, they will claw, and you have to be careful like they don't take you down with them, right? That's what the word means. And what Paul is saying is that when the gospel came to the Gentiles, and now let's, let's, let, let's again, Gentiles, let's put it into our cultural context, the elites, the ideologues, the people that we wouldn't think would ever, ever darken the door of a church, right? Paul says, when those people were confronted by their brokenness and by their desperate place, they clinged to Christ. They grabbed hold of him as if their very life depended upon it. And guess what? It does. It does. And so Paul, I think, here is giving us a beautiful picture of the gospel that what has to happen for every person to know Christ is they have to come to the end of themselves. And Paul says those Gentiles, they were floundering, pagan idolatry, they were lost, they were hopeless. And boy, when the good news came, it was good news. I no longer have to try to save myself. Let me just ask you a question. It's very easy in a room this size to assume that we're all on the same page here. Because are you? Has Jesus, is he, is he the cornerstone for you or is he a stumbling block? Is he someone that you know apart from him, you have no life, you have no hope, or is he just like a hobby on the weekends? on a Sunday? Is he just a nice sort of thing to sort of sprinkle some morality for, on top of and for your, your kids and your home? Or is, in fact, is he your savior? That's the spiritual problem Paul puts his finger on. Right? Last point, then we're going to be done. The biblical prescription. Because I think verse 2 is one of the scarier verses in this text because it paints a stark reality. Verse 2, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now, what is zeal? Well, Webster says it's something like a fervent passion, right? It's, a, it, it, it's to have an urgency about things. And Paul tells us in his former life as a Jew, he had a lot of what? Zeal. He had a zeal for the law of God. He had a zeal for persecuting the church. He had a zeal for throwing Christians into prison. He had a zeal, think about this, for seeing Stephen stoned, which should tell us something. Guys, being zealous for something, even sincerely, can never be the ultimate test of truth. Guys, you can be zealous about a lot of things and be totally wrong, totally misguided. See, and now, now you talk about fighting words in our culture, right? What is the test for truth in our culture? Sincerity. If you sincerely believe it, if you think it works for you, then who am I to say differently? That word for zealotry or being zealous, it's related to the word fanatical, right? Which, of course, we get our word fans. And, and what, 
what distinguishes fans from just run-of-the-mill sports observers, right? Fans have that uncanny ability to think the very best about their team, even when they know deep down it's not true. Have you noticed that? Like, it's three months to kick off, and, all, and you guys, whatever team you're on, you're already convinced we're 10-2, and two, we're 11-1, and one, we're going to the championship game. I'm looking at you, Emory. Okay, we're, you know, all these sorts of things, right? And that's what a fan does. They are overly optimistic about what they believe and their chances, despite what may actually be true. Paul says that same thing happens with people and relationships and life. It's what happened with the Jews. Paul says they were zealous, they were excited, they were fervent. But Paul says they were ignorant, they were misguided. And we have to say, well, how did that happen? Pastor Paul, weren't they committed to the study of God's word? Didn't they love the word of God? Didn't they treasure the word of God? Two examples from Jesus' ministry where he speaks to this very issue. Matthew twenty two twenty nine. He's arguing with the religious leaders, and he says, But Jesus answered them, You were wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Matthew 15, he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? You have made void the word of God of God. See, there is a big difference in understanding the Word of God from a distance, from, from sort of the theological ivory tower, and sort of getting all of our theological ducks in a row so that we can debate and, and talk about theology with our friends. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about, have you and I come under the Word of God? Are we saturated in it? When a crisis or point of struggle or conflict or suffering comes, and it will, what bleeds out of you at that time? Something's going to bleed out of you, right? And when we are Bible-saturated people who are intently studying the Word of God, where we're not just ignorant, uh, not non-ignorant of the Word of God, but we've actually come under and, and let it have its sway in our life where it's rearranged the furniture of our hearts. We've truly come to understand God. Guys, you cannot know God. You cannot know Jesus apart from His Word. And you've heard me say this a hundred times. When the storms come, and they will come, do we have a faith? Do we have a knowledge of the word? Do we have a God that's big enough to withstand those storms? Let me offer this encouragement to you as we, as we wrap this one up. Look at verse 4. Paul says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Because one, one of the what that means, by the way, is that, is that Jesus was always the goal of the Old Testament. Everything was fulfilled in him. So he's the end, he's, the, he's the, the end goal. But it also means that once we come to know Christ, we stop wrestling. We stop struggling, not to obey, not to pursue God or holiness, but pursuing God for all the wrong reasons and all the wrong ways to say that if I just do this, then God will do this. 
And if I'm just faithful in this way, then the righteousness of God can be mine. I can be accepted by him. And Paul's overarching point in this is that the reason the Gentiles grasped it by faith is because they knew they needed Jesus. What about you? Because one of my encouragements to you this summer season is don't waste your summer, right? Um, Sometimes it provides a different rhythm for us, um, for you and your lives, whether it's vacation or travel or it's not as busy typically. Because use this summer as a means, as a way, as an opportunity to saturate yourself in the Word of God. Guys, don't waste the summer. We have resources out by the fireplace where... um, books on Romans, books on reading the Bible through the year. What an, we, have, we have book clubs um, being offered this summer for women, Bible studies for men. There's a lot going on. Use this as an opportunity where, God, where you say, God, make me zealous, but make me zealous according to knowledge. Make me zealous for the most important thing, and that's for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.